Thank you for your goodness to us displayed in so many ways. Displayed through the death of your Son Christ on the cross. We thank you for your goodness and the grace that you bestow upon us. We thank you for your goodness and the fact that you never leave us and you never forsake us. That you have washed us and cleansed us. You've claimed us and named us. You've sealed us. You've recorded our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Father, we're grateful for your undeserved goodness to us. This morning we come together to just express our love and adoration to you. And as we've already lifted up our voices in song and as we've already contributed and, and demonstrated that you're worthy of the resources that you entrust to us. Now we give you our attention and we pray that you would speak, that we would hear your word through those who have recorded it, those who have preserved it, through your Holy Spirit who indwells it, through the living word that speaks to us. We pray, Father, that you would instruct us in the things that we should know, that you will convict us of the things that we should be doing or be not doing, the beliefs and the behaviors that make up our Christian life. We pray above all, Father, that in everything that's said, everything that's done, every aspect of our time together this morning, that it will display your glory. We're grateful. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, I want you to open to the book of 1 Timothy. While you're there, I want to go ahead and give you some of the background for what's going on and what we're going to be studying. Uh, We are starting a series called A Compelling Congregation. Now, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I like that phrase because compelling means a couple of different things. If you look at it as an adjective, are you grammar guys? What's an adjective? It's a word that describes something, a compelling congregation. So as an adjective, it means to evoke interest or attention or admiration in a powerfully irresistible way, Uh, something that is not able to be resisted or something that has, in one definition, has a powerful effect. We should be a congregation that has a powerful effect for the glory of God. Amen? We want to be a compelling congregation. Another synonym for that is attractive. How many attractive people do we have here this morning? As I look out across the sanctuary, I see that we're filled with attractive people here this morning. But we want to be those who attract people to the attractiveness, to the glory, to the goodness of God. But there's also another use of the word compel. It is a verb as well. And a verb is an action word. To compel... The definition is to drive or to urge forcefully, irresistibly, to cause or to, or to cause to do or to occur by, by pressure, by exerting pressure with full engagement. In Luke chapter 14, we have the parable of the ba- great banquet that Jesus told. A rich man threw a banquet and he invited friends, many friends, to come to the banquet. banquet. And when it became time to bring them in, they made excuses and they didn't come. And so, verse 23 of Luke 14, the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. As a church, we want to be an attractive church. Not attractional, attractive. Attractional is a mindset that says we will do whatever you want so that you will come. However, that's not our goal nor our purpose. We want to do whatever God wants, amen? So His glory is displayed, and it is His truth that attracts people. Churches that focus on 
doing gospel things, a church that puts the glory of God on display, are naturally attractive. In Acts chapter 5, we have the church in Jerusalem. And there's a really kind of a, a, an unusual combination of verses there. It says that they became well known throughout the city of Jerusalem and people feared them and so they stayed away. But at the same time, God added to the church multitudes. And so every church that glorifies God, just like Christ, attracts but also can repel. The important question is why people are attracted to the church or even who is attracted to the church. If people are attracted to the church because the church is no different from the world that they live in and because they're able to feel at home right away, that is indicative of a problem. We don't want to create barriers. We want to create bridges to the gospel. However, the church is different. If we're attracted because the church is different, and if they are attracted because the church is different or because they can see that God is present among the believers, it's a different story. We find this, again, I'm going to just, this is the introduction, all right? But in 1 Corinthians, you guys know about the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth, a church that he established. And as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you begin to think, what in the world is the problem with this church? All of a sudden, there are cliques and divisions, and he's got to address that. I mean, in chapter 1, he gets nine verses of greeting, which is high. Well, not high, but, you know, greeting Paul, the apostle. And he expresses his love to them in grace. He commends them very briefly, and immediately he says, Is Christ divided? You guys are dividing up into groups, and you're arguing, and you're fighting. We find some gossip and backstabbing and other things that are taking place that Paul addresses in his letter. We find an issue of open immorality and a lack of church discipline, church training. Paul addresses in chapter 5. In chapter 6, he's talking about immorality and its impact upon the individual's life. But then he's also talking about the church and how we should have the wisdom of God and be able to litigate disputes, if you will, mediate disputes among ourselves with the wisdom of God. We're going to be judging the world at some point as his followers in the future that he has for us. But as you go through this, you see that there's kind of an issue after issue after issue. And then we have chapter 12, 13, and 14. And that is the corporate life of the church. Does anybody know what the First Corinthians chapter 13 is called? The love chapter. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And he goes through that passage and he describes love. And we use that in weddings and we use that at other times and it's appropriate to do so because it's a definition of love. But the context is the church. The church gathered. The church in relationship with one another. But then you get to chapter 14, and they were having wild worship services. Have you guys ever been in a wild worship service? There were some wild things that were happening from speaking in unknown tongues, speaking in known tongues, to different people standing up and prophesying at different times during the service. And Paul corrects this, and he says, wait, you guys are not doing things in order. You guys are doing things out of order to call attention to yourself. We had a guy in South Texas where I used to pastor, Pastor at a deaf church, and the deaf people had given him a sign name, and it was Mr. Look at Me. Okay? And that was, his, that was how he was, he was referred to, Mr. Look at Me. They had people in this service who were standing up so that everyone would look at them. And Paul corrects them. It's very important how he corrects them. In chapter 14, he says, Now, if the prophecy is taking place, which is the foretelling of the truth of God, and an unbeliever or a guest or an outsider comes, 
then that's a good thing because he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. God reveals the secrets of his heart. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And so the, the worship of God is to be attractive as it displays the glory of God. And here's the point. We are as compelling, or we should be as compelling, as Jesus is. When we, we reflect His glory in our assembly, in our lifestyle, in our structure, and in our worship, and in our behavior. Many of you know we're in the process of moving back to the West End, getting there soon. I'm excited about that. It's always encouraging to see things change in that respect. We also have the joyous privilege of updating our bylaws. Some of this life of the church is real exciting stuff, but as we're going back over all of these documents that tell us how we make these decisions and how we function, how we're structured, I've been studying the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus because those are called the pastoral epistles. This is the Apostle Paul who served as the church planner and established churches in different areas. He sent guys out there to be the pastors and to be the elders of those churches. And then these are letters to those guys, to Titus and to Timothy, on how to order and structure the church and challenges and encouragement for them. Uh, the book of First Timothy is where we're going to look this morning, particularly because of the theme and how it speaks to where we are in the life of our church. Paul had left Timothy in the city of Ephesus, and he was to lead there. Paul had gone on to Macedonia. On his uh, second missionary journey was when he established the church, and, he established, uh, and then he visited Ephesus after leaving Corinth, planted the church there. On his third missionary journey, he came back, and he stayed almost three years in the city of Ephesus, teaching in the city, evangelizing, uh, sharing the gospel, and equipping in doctrine the, the people that were in the church. Paul was teaching in the rented school, rented space. He was uh, uh, correcting some sins that were in the uh, community as people came to the Lord Jesus Christ and wanted to follow him. Uh, it was very controversial. You know how I just said that Christ is appealing and attractive. There are people who hate the truth, people who hate God, people who hate the things of God. They are not attracted. They're repelled. They do attack. And Paul experienced that at Ephesus, but about 10 years later, he wrote the book, the letter to the church at Ephesians, and they were doing well. They had Jews and Gentiles both coming together. They were, they were growing and learning, and Paul was encouraging and equipping them. But now, about 10 years after that, well, actually about seven years after that, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, who is the pastor of this congregation. As the years had passed, some, some problems arose, and some were more serious than others, but they all needed addressing, correcting, pointing out. And so here in this letter, we have a, an emphasis more than any other book of the New Testament on the organization, the doctrine, uh, and the relationships in a church. And so it's worthy of our attention. And we're going to take several weeks in this series where we are not going to go verse by verse through the book of First Timothy. We're going to look at passages and major themes as they come, as they are revealed and recorded in the book of First Timothy, and we'll apply them in our in our context. Let me just kind of give you an idea where we're going, so that you're aware. Today, a compelling congregation reflects the glory of God. A compelling congregation reflects the glory of God, and we're going to look at the testimony of Paul in First Timothy chapter one, verses twelve through seventeen. Next week, we're going to see one of the things that we were talking about this morning, earlier, is that 
A compelling congregation serves one another. We love one another, and so we meet one another's needs, and we serve for the good of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Week 3, we'll be looking at a, a compelling congregation has faithful servants. Basically, the subtitle of that sermon is, Who are deacons and what do they do? So we're going to look at the life and the role and the ministry of the diaconate deacons. And week four is a compelling congregation is well-led. And that's the answer to the question, what's the big deal about elders? What does it mean to be an elder or a pastor in a church? And then week five is a compelling congregation is a praying congregation, reliant prayer, a, a congregation that is committed to seeking God's face and seeking God's communion with God through time spent in prayer. And so... All of that's the introduction. First Corinthians, first Corinthians, first Timothy, chapter one. I want to read with me. I want you to read with me as we read this this section of scripture together. It's a pretty big deal. When Paul writes to Timothy in First Timothy, he gives a couple of verses of greeting, and immediately he says, "I left you there in Ephesus. I left you there in Ephesus for a, a big reason. There are some people who are teaching." things that just aren't true there are false teachers there and he really calls them ignorant he says look they're teaching things about the law that they purport to know but they don't know they're not teaching according to sound doctrine they're not teaching according to scripture and he talks about the use of the law and then when you get to verse 12 he's reminded of something that's great he says i thank him who has given me strength who is that it's christ jesus our lord because he has judged me faithful, me, Paul, faithful. He's appointed me to his service. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of kings, or to the king of ages, immortal invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the king. You're the king immortal. You are the king invisible. You are the sovereign. And we give you glory and we give you honor. We ascribe to you the glory that, that you revealed to us. You are a glorious God and a glorious king. You're loving and you're merciful. And you are just and you are righteous. And Father, we come before you as your people. So you speak to us. You talk to our hearts today. In your name I pray. Amen. Important when we talk about being a compelling church. That being a compelling church does not always mean that you have a big crowd or the best people or the best musicians or the most polished speakers. I'm really glad about that. I told some of you earlier, I got to go to a conference earlier in the week. It was in Columbia. Uh, Dr. Stephen Lawson 
was the teaching a series on how to preach. I was surprised that when I told people I was going to learn how to preach, they all applauded. I mean, they were a little, but no, it, it, we all need to be learning and all need to be continually equipped. But it was a very encouraging time for me. But he talked about the need for good and clear exposition. And he also said it's really not about you other than your character and your yieldedness and the gifts that God has given to you. Because the glory of God is not put on display through the best mankind has to offer. I want you to understand that. The glory of God is not put on display by your best gifts or your best talents or your best ability apart from the presence and the power of God in your life. I mean, we can do a lot to look good. We can do a lot to sound good. But if we want supernatural power, if we want God to be on display, it requires that we be filled with Him, that we be yielded to Him, that we be His. When I first came to Pendleton Street Baptist Church, in 1991, I was pastor of the Deaf Church that met in Greenville. And then September of that year, the Deaf Church started meeting in space in rooms that were there at Pendleton Street Baptist Church. We stayed there in that church, in that in the building, sharing the building with Pendleton Street for uh, Suzanne and I were there, I think, seven years. Uh, and uh, then we went to Columbia for five years, which was a great time of ministry for us, uh, being equipped, being trained, uh, serving in ministry there. And then God called us back to Pendleton Street in 2003. And I remember as we came into the building, walking into that beautiful sanctuary, 1,500-seat sanctuary, that beautiful steeple that was rising, the big platform uh, that was there and, and, and looking around. I had a, some folks come up to me that first Sunday and said, listen, we're so glad you're here. It's your job to fill this place up again. When we built it, it was full. When we built it in 1963, we needed the space. We were averaging over 2,000 in Sunday school at the time. But at this point, we're down to about 140 people. We had some people worshiping in the fellowship hall, some people worshiping upstairs in the sanctuary. And, and I won't call his name, but he said, that's why... We called you. It's your job to fill this room back up. And I said, well, well, first of all, number one, it's not. It's God's job to fill this room back up. It's God's job to do what he wants to do for his glory. Certainly, I'm here to simply obey him and be faithful to what he's called me to do, as are you. But just out of curiosity, why do you want the building full? And he said... Because it reminds me of our glory days. You guys remember the glory days? And there may be times in your life where there were glory days. Time when you were captain of the high school football team. I don't know. I, I, I listen to music and it comes up every once in a while. It may be times when this happened in the past or that happened in the past. And this man genuinely, I think he was motivated well. I don't think he understood the theological truth very well. But he wanted the church to be restored to the the days when this was the place to be in Greenville and to, to, to show forth again glory. Now, I do believe his motivation was to show forth again God's glory to the extent that he meant it. But I want to begin by simply saying something that's very important that we grasp and understand. A crowd is not a church. If you're listening, if you're writing notes on your, on your worship guide, this is a very simple thing that's important that you understand. 
a, a, a crowd is not a church. You can have a lot of people who come to church on Sunday morning and who meet together and who read together, who know one another by name, who network for business and are kind together, who gather together to join together to meet the needs of their community, who will even gather and sit underneath the, the teaching or, or the, the speaking of a teacher or a preacher, and yet it not be a church. And not, it not be a church. This church that Paul was talking to at Ephesus, yes, it was a church, but there was a component there. Paul has already clearly established a dividing line. As a matter of fact, if you're in chapter 1, he's talking about the sinners that Christ came to save. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law, this is God's law, God's holy word, the Old Testament that they were teaching from, the law is not laid down for the just, or those who have been justified, for believers, but for the lawless and disobedient. And now listen to, his, to the target audience of the law. They're ungodly and they're sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, those who capture people into slavery, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, when you look at that list, that's a horrible list to look at. And you think, the law is for them? Why? Can they follow the law? Can they change? Can they be good enough to somehow give glory to God, even though they are obviously clearly engaged in these behaviors, not following the law of God? And the answer is no. If you go to Romans chapter 3, Paul says, We gave the law to the Gentiles. The law was given to the Jews, but it was shared with the Gentiles. But the purpose of the law is not to make you righteous. The purpose of the law is to turn on the light that there is none righteous. No, not one. That our righteousness is unclean. It's like filthy rags. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That behold, your sins have separated between you and your God. And that every person, every person, because of what we inherited from Adam, is separated from God and needs a Savior. Whether wh- the, the, the inheritance that we receive by, from, from being humans, as by one man sent into the world, so death has passed on to all men. By our willful volition of violating the law of God, David said, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Everybody you know at one point was separated from God. But what about Paul? What about Paul? Those who are rebelliously separated from God are liars. They they are deceivers. They are this list of things that we just said. But what about good moral people? Was Paul a good moral person? You just heard his testimony earlier in the service. He was a Jew. He was probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He was well-educated, he was well-dressed, he spoke well, and he was fervent in his beliefs. And yet he asked for and received permission to go persecute the church in Damascus, both men and women, and to put them in jail. And so when you get to the bottom of this list, Paul says, listen, there's something that you need to know. This is a, a, a worthy saying, it's worthy uh, of, of, of repeating, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here's what he said, And I'm the foremost. I'm number one. I'm the worst. Won't you understand that you can have a crowd that has the name church on the building, but there be no power of God on display because 
people have not come to a personal relationship with Christ. They might look good, and they might sound good, and they might act good, and, and they might be here in person, but every person that has not yet come to the knowledge of their need to be saved and responded to that in repentance and faith is not a believer. The Holy Spirit does not indwell them. I was talking to a pastor down the road this past, well, um, over, over the last couple of months. I don't know, God's given me a, a, a different kind of ministry lately. I've been able to be an encouragement to pastors whose churches are in conflict. Did you guys know churches sometimes fight? Occasionally people disagree. And occasionally that disagreement rises to the level of, of an argument or a fight. Churches sometimes fight. And I was talking to this guy, and it was a great opportunity just to be a source of encouragement for him and a source to tell him to be faithful to the, to the Word of God, to love people who disagree with him. But when it's a doctrinal issue and it's a theological issue and it's an issue that matters, stand on truth unswervingly, faithfully. Don't let go. He, uh, he said, well, here's my concern. He said, the leader of the opposition, he said, I don't think he's saved. I don't think he's safe. What am I supposed to do when the leader of a guy who's attacking my character and attacking everything that I say doesn't demonstrate the character of Christ? He said, I'm not trying to be pious or say, well, you know, I'm saved and therefore he disagrees with me. He must be lost. I'm not saying that. But the way that he communicates, the way that he speaks, the behavior that he engages in does not demonstrate the character of Christ. The man... he will say words in a prayer, but there's no, there's no, you know how the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are the, the children of God together? He said, it's just, there's just a, a major rift there. And he asked me, what am I supposed to do? And I said, well, there are two things. Number one, to the extent that you are able, you need to remove him from influential leadership in the congregation. Lost people don't lead according to God's will in the church of God. Amen. Now, be appropriate, be kind, don't work in a vacuum. But that, that in your situation, that's something that needs to be addressed right now. But there's something else that you need to do. You need to treat him just like you do all lost people. You've got to love him. And you've got to pray for him. And you've got to speak the word of God into his life. And the focal point of your conversation needs to be his need to be washed and to be cleansed. That Christ has made a way that he can be saved. That he came into the world to save sinners. So that this man becomes a, a target of your evangelism. He becomes part of the ones that you are there to reach. A crowd does not a church make. But you know what a church is? It's a crowd. It's a crowd of people who have been shown mercy. It's a crowd of people who have come to the place where they said, I recognize, like Paul did, that I am the chief of sinners that I am the one who needs a Savior, that I have contravened the Word of God, that if I were to stand before God today and try to justify myself, I would have to stand there and say, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. You are holy and you are right and you are good and you are pure and you are the Creator and you have the right to judge. And I'm guilty. I'm guilty of breaking your law. I'm guilty of ignoring you. I'm guilty of ruling my own life and running my own life and, and, and not acknowledging that you are the king at all. And when you come to that place and you recognize that you need cleansing and you need forgiving and you need washing, you know what you get? You get mercy. Paul said, 
This is a faithful saying. Hey, what is it that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost? I love the words that he used. He says, I receive mercy. I needed it because I'd acted in ignorance, no knowledge, blinded mind. I'd acted out of unbelief. Yeah, I was hearing what was going on, but I didn't embrace it. I didn't believe it. I didn't commit myself to it. And as such, I was a terrorist to the church, imprisoning people, hunting them down with authority. I attacked the very body of Christ. Stephen read this morning that when Paul was on his way to Damascus to attack Christians there, people of the way, as described. When Paul was on his way there, Jesus stopped him on the way. What an experience. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A couple of things to note there, but the main thing is that Christ called him out in his sin. And when he called him out in his sin, of course, he extended mercy to him. He sent Ananias to him, and God gave him, Christ gave him a mission, a purpose, a responsibility, but only after he gave him eyes to see only after he gave him ears to hear. A crowd is not a church, but a church is a crowd of those who receive mercy. I will tell you, an arrogant Christian is an oxymoron. A Christian who stands in pride and looks down their long nose at people who are different from them or people who even are, according to this list, immoral and ungodly, sinners of every stripe, and they look down their nose as though I am better than you, that is not a scriptural teaching. The Bible makes it very clear that there but for God's grace go I, there and far worse. That the, the, the greatest and the most humble Christians are the greatest Christians. The ones who God uses the most are the ones who recognize their own brokenness and their need before a holy God. And there's no goodness in themselves. It is the goodness that is bestowed and ascribed upon them by the presence of of Christ in their life. They're people who've received mercy. People who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Important. Important that we grasp and know that. It's people who have had grace poured out upon them. I love this. Paul says, not only did he extend mercy to me, he overflowed on grace for me. Overflowed. Overflowed. Suzanne and I have a new Keurig. Come over, we'll give you a cup of coffee. This Keurig has a carafe. And, of course, it has the cup at a time. And, and we believe in coffee, by the way. This is one of the graces of God. I just want to let you know. But it's a new coffee pot. And so I, I, I put the coffee cup, my coffee cup, un, it's a, a Philippines mug, actually, that I got from Pastor Mel. I put it underneath the, the thing. And Suzanne's standing there watching me. And I put the cake up in and I close it. And it's got all these different choices and it goes like 8, 10, 12 carafe. And I'm thinking, I want a carafe. But I'll settle for 12. So I hit 12, and as soon as I do, she goes, No! That cup won't hold 12. I'm like, sure it will. Sure it will. 12 ounces of coffee. That's not much coffee. Great goodness. You know, I get 20 ounces at the Sphinx every morning. Yeah, it's not much. And that little cup, we were standing... Somebody called, and I was talking on the phone. I forget who it was. But we were standing there watching, that, and that coffee got higher, and it got higher, 
and it got higher. And about the time it reached the brim, I thought, this thing's not going to cut off. I am in trouble. It overflowed. It overflowed. Now, of course, Suzanne is always on the ball and always on it. She already had another cup ready to swap out. She already had stuff ready to clean up the mess that I made. But it's just sad to me to see good coffee going on the countertop. I mean, it's just a, just a sad thing. But we cleaned the coffee up. It just poured right over the top. More than it could hold. To all ye who weary and are heavy laden. To all of you who are struggling to get through life. And it seems like every time you take one step forward, you fall back two or three steps. To all of you who wish you had your best life now, but when you look around, you recognize if this is as good as it gets, there's no hope. All of you who recognize or are beginning to recognize that you have a need that you can't meet, can I give you good news? That God, in His loving kindness, knew that you were going to be too small. Knew that you were not going to be capable and you were not going to be able to correct the fault in your relationship with Him. And it was going to be a challenge that was inside, insurmountable to you. And you were going to need rescuing by one outside of yourself. And so God in His loving kindness, because He loved you, became a man. His Son, Jesus. Equal with God. Co-equal with God. Part of the Godhead of God. Uh, of God. The, the second person of the Trinity took on humanity and did what you could not. He lived without sin. He lived perfectly. He never had a wrong thought. He never transgressed the law of God. He never lost it unrighteously he lived perfectly and then because he was qualified as a man to pay the penalty for men and their sin he willingly went to the cross and there the wrath of god against sin was poured out upon him and you know what he does for you he gives you mercy which means you don't have to pay for your sin but he also gives you grace you see mercy just brings the balance to zero. If you've ever had an overdrawn account, don't tell me about it. I don't want to know. But if you ever had an overdrawn account, you put money in the bank account, you just get up to zero with mercy. You know what grace does? Grace floods the account with all of the inheritance that God has for us in His righteousness. Sufficiency to live. The ability to change the way we think believe and behave his life that comes inside of us to change us to transform us to make us something new a crowd is not a church but a church is a crowd of people just like you and me who one time were rebellious against god and then we encountered christ and as a result of our response to him he's come in and he's making us made us new and he's poured out mercy upon us granted mercy to us and he's poured out grace within us. And we've become, like Paul, something that we've never been before. And if you are hearing the sound of my voice, or if you're watching online, or wherever you may be exposed to this message, my prayer is that you will not delay. That you will respond to his call on your life by coming to him and praying and asking for forgiveness of sin and entrusting your life to him. Listen. I don't have to give you words to say. You will know what to say. You just call out to God. You just call out to God. There's a third component to what it means to be a church that glorifies God. 
A church that glorifies God puts Christ on display. It's not a crowd, but it is a crowd of those who receive mercy and grace. The church puts on display the glory of Christ. You remember what Paul says in these verses. He says, I received mercy for a reason. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, that means the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We're saved for a purpose. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, we have the glory of God placed in earthen vessels. We have the glory of God placed in earthen vessels. We have become recipients of the very life of God. And it is to put a couple of things on display. First of all, it is to put the grace of God on display. Listen, if I can be saved, anybody can be saved. If you can be saved, there's no one beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no one beyond the reach of God's election. There's no one beyond the reach of of God's moving and working and calling. There's no one beyond the reach of the conviction of sin and righteous and judgment. There's no one beyond, there's no one too bad, no one that is personally disqualified. Because we can't personally qualify ourselves. There is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Paul said, listen, God saved me. To show everybody else just how patient he was. God saved me just to show everybody else what a change he makes. God chose me, chose me and saved me, called me, separated me, anointed me. And he's given me this ministry, not so that I get a big head or so that I'm well known, but so that he is. So that he's well known, his might and his power. Listen, we ought to be putting on display in our lives every day the glory of God how he's changed us how he's made us new so what does that mean as the body of Christ I think it simply means that we make much of Jesus I want to give you three things and this is the end of the message and they'll go quickly but first of all we make much of Jesus in the choices we make we're called to live holy if there's no difference between you and the people you hang with who don't know Jesus something's wrong He saved us to live His life in us. And so, yes, there are things that we cannot do. The Bible does have thou shalt nots. And it does have thou shalt. Yes, there are things that we are called and instructed to do. And we do them not so that we can earn His love. We do them because we love Him. We do them because He knows best. We do them because we trust Him and we allow Him to change the way we think and to change the way that we behave. We allow Him to give us... we. Give him the right. We listen to him as he tells us, listen, you need to establish boundaries in your life. There are places you cannot go. There are things you cannot see. There are things that you cannot do. As a matter of fact, rather than those things, there are places you must go. There are things that you must see. There are things that you must do. Because I'm God. Because I love you fully and truly. And because I know what's best. I told a story before about the teenage girl in high school who was in a, there were several cars lined up outside of the quick stop in Belton, South Carolina. Not many places to hang out in Belton, don't judge. But outside the McDonald's, there on the way to BHP. 
several cars lined up, and someone says to her, hey, we're going to go over to so-and-so's place, and we're going to go hang out, and we'll get into some stuff. So-and-so's got beer in a car, and so-and-so's got some other stuff, and we're just going to go party for a while, come join us. And she said, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. My dad wouldn't like it. My dad doesn't want me to do that. And so they kind of jeered at her and said, what, you afraid of your dad? Are you, are you afraid your dad going to hurt you? And she said, no. I'm afraid I'm going to hurt him. I love him. I don't want to hurt him. Can I tell you that we're called to live holy? When people see us, they should see the Lord Jesus Christ in us. We're called to live in unity. What, is the body of Christ divided? Are we not the body of Christ? We're called to glorify God in our lives and the choices that we make and in the relationships we have. But I I will tell you this. How will all the world know that we're disciples of Christ according to what Jesus said? How does all the world know that we are disciples of Christ according to what Jesus told his disciples? I'll start. You finish. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. We love. We ought to be the best lovers on the planet. We ought to know what it looks like and what it feels like to sacrificially invest our time and our energy and our money for God's glory. For the good of his body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For the good of the community that he's placed us in. It is the goodness of God many times that draws people to repentance. Will we be a compelling church? Only to the extent that you lead a compelling life. Because as much as I've been dealing with brick and mortar lately, the church is not brick and mortar. We are. The life of God in the people of God for the glory of God. Amen? Isn't God good? Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this group of believers, for all who are engaged and listening. And I pray that you will speak to our hearts, that we'll look at what happened in Paul's life. He wrote this letter to a young man who was leading a congregation. He himself had planted He wanted to make sure that their doctrine was good and sound. And the first component of that is that a crowd does not a church make. What makes a church is the life of Christ in the hearts of people who come to Him in repentance and faith. It's people who have received mercy and people to whom grace has been poured out upon. So I want to start there, Father, today. As we come together... Search us and try us. Help us to examine ourselves to make sure that we are of the faith. We want to know you and walk with you, be washed and cleansed and filled with you. Because we exist for your glory. You established the church. You promised that. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are not offensive. Gates are no problem to people who aren't going anywhere. You called us to go. You called us to be. You called us to do. So help us to Display your glory by living a godly life. Help us to display your glory by loving well. 
by being in good relationships, by being faithful to the truth of your word. And you do what only you can do. You open the eyes just like you did Paul's. You open the understanding. You turn the light on. You resurrect. You bring to life. You regenerate the work of your spirit as we are faithful to proclaim the good news of Christ. Father, use us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.